Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. Uh, as we mentioned at the end of last week's episode, this week with both the Microsoft and Apple uh, hardware and uh, software events happening back to back, we thought it would be best to dispense with our usual format and just spend the time discussing the announcements from these two, two events and, and compare and contrast them a little bit and really talk about the state of competition between these two companies and their respective ecosystems. So that's what we're going to do today. Uh, Microsoft held its event on Wednesday morning in New York City, and I watched the whole thing remotely. I think Aaron's uh, seen a lot of the coverage of the event. And then uh, yesterday, Thursday, Apple held its event in Cupertino, and I was there in person for that um, and uh, announced its own set of things. And so we'll be talking about both of those events, what was announced but more specifically, we'll talk about kind of the meaning of it, if you like, uh, and comparing the announcements and the significance of those. And so we'll talk through the Microsoft event first, we'll talk through the Apple event second, and then I imagine as we go, we'll, we'll be making references to the other as well. But after we get done discussing each of them individually, I think we'll spend some more time just kind of talking about the broader significance of all this. So that's the plan for today. No question of the week, no weekly pick. Um, we'll be back with that stuff in, in the next week or two, I would imagine. Uh, so let's kick off with the Microsoft event. Uh, it's an interesting one. Builds, I think, by a lot of the press ahead of time as a Surface event because that's what Microsoft's tended to hold at this time of year. And yet it wasn't just a hardware event. It was also a preview of another update to Windows 10 that's coming in the spring. So it'll be known as the Creators Update. Uh, and then uh, there, there was a slight sort of set of spec bumps and things for the Surface Book, um, but no real sort of overhaul of the Surface Book or the Surface Pro uh, but there was a brand new piece of hardware, which is called the Surface Studio. This is an all-in-one, a very high-end one, um, touch, big, big touch screen, uh, very high resolution, um, wide color gamut screen, uh, really designed for creative professionals that deal with um, whether it's video or photography or whatever, people who really need a big screen that's high fidelity and uh, that want to really get into that screen in terms of touching it and so on. So it was a big part of the, the emphasis. But the overall theme for me, at least from the event, was creativity. Um, and this is something that's interesting to me because I've been working for, with Microsoft, with their strategy team for the last several years. And I, I dug out a presentation that I'd done a couple of years ago on Wednesday after seeing the event. Um, the problem with Microsoft has been um, they, they've really done a good job of, I think, refocusing their vision and so on over the last several years under Satya Nadella. Uh, and one of the key sort of tenets of that has been productivity and getting things done. And yet the problem is they, they try to apply that to everything, including a bunch of stuff that most people absolutely don't think of as being productivity. Uh, and I had a slide from that presentation a couple of years ago in which they were saying, you know, productivity includes, you know, a variety of work stuff. It includes writing poetry. It includes, you know, watching movies and various other things. And I think to most of us, those things aren't productivity. And so what Microsoft really needed to do is it wants to get more serious about the consumer space is, is figure out a, a counterpart to productivity uh, for the consumer market, for the consumer halves of each of us that do work and play. Um, and it seems like it's really settled on creativity is kind of the word there. And so that, that was the theme for me of this event. And we'll dive deeper into the individual announcements, but I'll pause there and let Aaron uh, say some things as well. So Aaron, what was your kind of initial takeaway from what you saw? Uh, well, I think you're exactly right about the creativity thing really being about consumer appeal. In fact, I think you could call the, the Windows the coming Windows update. You could just call it the the uh, the consumers the Windows 10 consumers update. Right. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, <clears throat> the productivity approach is is just. I mean, this is going to sound really condescending, but it's so 90s. 
right? right? I mean, it's what it's what computers really were about two decades ago, and they're not really that. That's not what they're for anymore. Um, you know, the computer, the market for for desktop computers for a couple decades in the market in which Microsoft grew up was a productivity oriented market. And it's ama- it's kind of funny how enduring that uh, corporate culture has been. Um, certainly Steve Ballmer perpetuated it because he grew up with Microsoft at the same time, you know, through that mm-hmm. whole productivity right. time. And and if you look at the way Apple markets its hardware and, and also Google too, um, with the consumer products that they market, it's all about lifestyle generally. And your life includes productivity and it includes creativity, you know, and everybody sort of has their different way of of expressing both of those things. And there ought to be just one tool for that that does a good job. Mm-hmm. And I think this is Microsoft rounding out their consumer image and their consumer appeal. The, the um, Surface Studio is a really interesting foray into that space, and we'll be talking more about it in a minute, but... But uh, yeah, this overall idea of of saying, "Hey, we can do creativity as well," mm-hmm. certainly isn't Microsoft saying, "Hey, we're all about creativity from here to the future." But it's just giving right. them it, it, it's it's sort of like you know an assault on on an area where most people don't think of Microsoft. If they can plant their flag there, then they have a much easier case to make that this is a lifestyle product, not just a, a productivity product. Yeah, no, absolutely agreed. And that's, I mean, people still obviously are going to use these devices to be productive. And in some cases, productivity is creativity. If you're really a creative professional, being productive at work means being creative. But yeah, that's right. this was clearly broader than that. This was clearly about uh, people being creative in their personal lives and their spare time and that kind of thing as well. And so I thought it was interesting. Um, Microsoft really spent the first sort of half of the event talking about software stuff that's part of mostly part of Windows 10. And so... There's a new version of Paint, and if you ever used a Windows PC back in the day, you'll be familiar with Paint. <laughs> it's a very basic sort of drawing program that you know was one of the few creative applications on Windows PCs back in the day. They've kind of completely overhauled that, and there's going to be a 3D version of it. And 3D was something of a theme in this sort of creative uh, consumer segment at the beginning of the event. I think it's a little gimmicky, frankly. I think there's yeah. a lot of this stuff that makes for a fun demo, but you know, the demo, in, in case you didn't watch the event, the demo was you know, um, the presenter had gone with her kids to the beach and taken a picture of a sandcastle, and now she came home and both she and her kids had created these three-dimensional scenes out of these um, scans and photographs that they'd taken while at the beach and various other elements as well. Um, and it, as I say, made for an interesting demo, but it's hard to imagine anybody actually wanting to do that ultimately. And um, I think part of the uh, reason for emphasizing 3D was it fits very well with the things that Microsoft's doing in holographic computing. So HoloLens, augmented reality, and so on. You know, three, consuming 3D on a two-dimensional display isn't all that exciting. Um, you know, 3D in video, for example, has kind of come and gone over the last few years from a consumer perspective. You still see it in movie theaters, but from a TV perspective, for example, it's completely died. It just isn't all that compelling. And uh, and so Microsoft needs more things to kind of drive this interest in augmented reality and holographic computing. And this feels like a tie to that. It is unique. And I did feel like some of the demos around PowerPoint in particular were a lot more interesting. So three-dimensional objects within a PowerPoint presentation that you can rotate and manipulate 
uh, to show people more angles on a subject. I think that is actually interesting. That's useful. But that's, again, productivity rather than creativity to a great extent. It's kind of back to the core value proposition. Um, what was fascinating to me was that there was a, one of these sort of sizzle reels that they do throughout these events, kind of showcasing some of the new features. And there was a of like a two or three seconds, there was an app that looked a lot like GarageBand. And so I went back into the video and yeah. paused it and looked, and it seems to be called Groove Music Maker. And of course, Groove is Microsoft's new brand for music streaming. And uh, so it seems like they're going to have a GarageBand equivalent as part of it. And I haven't seen anybody write about this yet, but it seems like that will be part of it too. And there may well be other sort of creative apps that are part of it as well. And I need to uh, see if I can download the, the Insiders edition of, of Windows 10 Creators Update and see what else is in there. But it does seem like there's going to be a broader push to embed some more creativity type features into Windows 10 for consumers. And, and you know, that's... Uh, the really meaningful thing, not paint 3D by itself or an emphasis on 3D in general, but kind of out of the box, these devices will be more capable as creativity devices. I agree that the 3D paint seemed like a weird thing to emphasize, um, especially because I, so I saw the, the Groove Music Maker thing as well. And uh, it, it, you know, is weird. Why not bring that up? I mean, that's yeah. certainly a much more accessible form of creativity that people are going to do for fun at home. But right. but at the same time, 3D is unique and makes them stand out. I think there's a worry right. that they, they don't want to look like they're just mimicking what other people have already made, specifically mm -hmm. Apple with GarageBand. Um, but, uh, you know, it, the, when you look at the other parts of the, of the, the uh, creator's update to Windows 10, I mean, they're they're adding in Xbox Live, Xbox Live streaming, which seems to have very little to do with creativity, you know. Right. But it but it is a social thing, and then the Windows People Edition I thought was really cool, and mm. it sort of marries the idea from iOS where you have quick access to your common contacts, and then puts those people down in the toolbar so you of, of Windows so you can get to them very easily. Again, right. that has nothing to do with creativity. I mean, I think they sort of positioned it as. You know, when you do these creative things, now here's an easy way to, to share, to share your stuff with right. the people you care about. But but the reality is I think a lot of people are going to find that handy in Windows just because they have quick access to the people that they, you know, are in touch with frequently. So yeah. it was really clear. Like I said, I mean, and that just drives the point home that this was the Windows 10 consumers update, not the create, creators update per se. Right, right. But yeah, I, I, I think it'll work. I mean, I think there will be a lot of people who enjoy it. And um, it, there are a lot of Windows devices out there. You know, I think yeah. it's something that's really easy to forget. And it, this, if nothing else, creates a, a lot of reasons for people to stay. Right. So. And that's something I want to come back to later on as after we've talked about the studio. Just before we talk about the Surface Studio, I want to talk about VR briefly because... Microsoft's been interesting in that its bet around this kind of future of different flavors of reality, if you like, has been on augmented reality. So HoloLens right. is all about augmented reality. It's been about uh, very high-end devices that really, frankly, seem like a better fit for commercial and industrial education uh, settings rather than consumer sort of mainstream applications. Um, and yet you've seen everybody else kind of focus on VR to a great extent. And you've seen now, you know, Sony... Uh, come out with this PlayStation VR uh, in the last few weeks and, and have that go on sale. Uh, we've seen, obviously, efforts from Oculus. We've seen a lot of smartphone-based stuff. We've seen Google come out with Daydream View. 
you know, there's a lot of consumer VR stuff that's at very much more accessible price points. And so it was interesting to see Microsoft, having really not talked about VR at all over the last couple of years, suddenly say, oh, by the way, a bunch of our OEMs are doing VR headsets and they're going to start at $300 and work with their PCs. Um, you know, this is, I think, a concession by Microsoft that it can't just have its alternative vision for what these future interfaces look like, that it does actually have to play in VR as well. And I, I suspect it's been pushed to do that by its OEMs to a great extent. I think they really want to have a role in this or want to have new hardware opportunities around VR and, and Microsoft needed to kind of uh, give them what they needed there. But it was interesting to see VR kind of come out of nowhere and be part of the 3D story that was part of the event as well. Again, not really about creativity, uh, but it sort of was slipped in there and, and now suddenly there's a story around Windows and, and VR that's separate from, say, Oculus or HTC or somebody else. So I thought that was an interesting inclusion as well. Yeah, and it's really just them keeping their options open. I mean, the truth is we still don't really appreciate what VR is going to accomplish, um, especially in the consumer space. It seems to have a natural appeal with gaming. Whether or not it'll you know, replace traditional displays altogether remains to be seen. I, I think they're just keeping their options open with right. it. Right. No, absolutely. I agree. Um, so anything else you want to talk about before we get on to the Surface Studio? No, I'm excited to talk about the studio, so let's okay. get to it. Let's do that. It, yeah. It's a fascinating product. Yeah, I mean, it's from all the coverage I saw, it was kind of the thing that everybody focused on the most. You know, here you have a new version of Windows and everybody's talking about a piece of hardware. Uh, and at that, a piece of hardware that's going to be extremely expensive, um, that's really a niche product. Um, and at the other end of the spectrum, I saw a bunch of people saying, oh, well, this, is, this product doesn't mean anything because it's so niche and expensive and nobody's actually going to use it. Um, and so I think it's worth about talking about at least both of those things as we go through. I mean, clearly beautiful hardware... Um, you know, Panos Panay, the, the presenter, the guy who runs hardware, um, is a fantastic presenter. He's extremely sort of passionate, feels very real, yeah. really seems to care very deeply about these products. And, and that passion really comes through uh, in the presentation. And, and it's, this certainly wasn't the first time that's happened. But, you know, he's one of the best presenters of these kinds of things out there. You know, Google really needs somebody like him because they really are missing that. Um, when it comes to these events, and, and you feel it um, when you watch their events. But Microsoft has Panos Panay, and he's fantastic. Um, but, you know, this is a beautiful product, very well thought through, you know, really lots of attention to detail and in lots of elements of it, really thought through kind of how it would be used and so on. There's this wonderful little uh, puck called the dial that can be a sort of... Uh, uh, a separate accessory or can be placed on the screen and then interacts with the screen in interesting ways. It's obviously a touchscreen device. Uh, it can sit like a, like an iMac or another all-in-one where it's just sort of vertical or bends down to become sort of a drawing board type scenario for you know drafting or whatever uh, where you can kind of use it the way um, some creative professionals might use a, a Wacom, a Cintiq or some other device to... Um, to, to do drawing directly on a screen rather than using, say, a, a mouse or something, some other sort of interaction device. So interesting to see that, um, you know, really compelling piece of hardware, but, you know, very clearly A, premium, B, kind of fairly specific use cases that are certainly marginal in the grand scheme of things, but, but really quite an impressive device. And as I say, captured a lot of the attention that I saw following the event. Yeah, I, I think the, the brand benefit that comes from the the uh, surface studio is immense i yeah. totally agree not a lot of people are going to buy this thing but it was but microsoft is going further and further into hardware and this was a step into hardware that showed that they can do things that are truly unique and creative and interesting and and quite frankly exciting 
Um, you know, there and and there have been reports of people since who've gotten their hands on it and been really enamored by by it. And obviously, it's because it fits their purposes, and this is, you know, cartoonists and others that are going to be using it the way that Microsoft seems to be intending it. But but what's so great about this is the novelty of it. It really is mm-hmm. new and interesting and unique, and and yeah. I just I, I just think Microsoft deserves all the credit in the world for coming up with such a creative new device. And, it, and sure, it starts at the high end, but I don't think it necessarily has to stay that way as time mm-hmm. goes on. It's funny, you know, when you started off describing all of the drawbacks of this thing, that it's expensive, that it's niche, these were all the same criticisms that people had of the original Mac. Right. <laughs> right. That it was, yeah. that, you know, you could like, that it was, that, that uh, it was only for specific people and so on and so forth. And it was expensive. And I'm not saying this is going to create the same kind of waves that, that, you know, the Mac did with the, with the original GUI and all that. But, but at the same time, um, it, it's, it's a novel product that is going to really make people think, oh, Microsoft can make, can make nice, exciting interesting computers not just not just the os that goes on them yeah and i think i think that's exactly the point here i think you know the surface studio yes there will be people who buy it absolutely microsoft didn't make it just just for marketing purposes you know they actually do absolutely do want to sell these and they will sell them Uh, but i think it's far more powerful as a sort of banner if you like or a stake in the ground depending on the analogy you want to choose basically their way of saying, you know, we're really serious about serving this space. We can do it well. Look how good this is. Um, you know, it's it's really a fantastic way of saying, you know, look what we can do. We'll do more of this and so on. And captures lots of attention, certainly got plenty of press over the last couple of days. Um, but then, you know, the reality is that the vast majority of people that are going to uh, experience a new creativity stuff in Windows 10, you know, for the single-digit millions of these things they might ever sell, Right. Uh, 400 million plus people are going to see the creativity features in Windows 10. But the hardware is this great sort of marketing strategy, this great way of saying, you know, we're really serious about hardware, really serious about solving, you know, the most creative, creative professionals. And at the same time, you know, here's a bunch of software tools for the rest of you, you know. And so it's uh, a great pairing, I think, actually. I think, you know, it, it tied together the creativity theme quite well, sort of the, the down-to-earth, you know, creativity in my spare time, market through software, and then the you know if you spend all day long in Photoshop or um, in you know Adobe apps, uh, then this is for you. And I thought it was a great great way of presenting and positioning it. Yeah, and I want to add one other comment about the Surface Dial, which is a, a unique idea. And it's not the first time somebody has used a dial as an interface. And, and uh, gosh, who is it now? I can't remember what third party manufacturer has been making one of these for years for the Mac. That's going to bug me now. Anyway, maybe it'll come to me. But, mm-hmm. but what I love about this, so this actually brought to mind uh, an interesting article I'd read years ago um, after the iPhone was kind of taking off. And it was clear that touchscreens were the interface of the future for many, many people as a primary computing device. And it was an industrial designer, and I really wish I could dig up where this came from, but it was years ago. But the concept is stuck in my head. It was an industrial designer kind of lamenting about the idea that that everything we interact with in the future would be two dimensional and stuck behind a pane of glass. Mm-hmm. You know, and in fact, I think do you remember years ago Microsoft came out with that sort of concept video where they had a lady riding in a car and there are basically UI elements appearing all over her life, like on the windows of the car and her, the desk surface of her office. And yeah, this is years like. Is probably four or five years ago, maybe. 
It was in response to that. But the idea was that, you know, we really, as human beings, we grab stuff, right? We wrap mm-hmm. our hands around things. Mm-hmm. We, 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 we push things. We don't just tap, you know, we squeeze, right. we do all this. Like we are capable of a lot more interaction than just tapping a, a two-dimensional surface that's trapped under glass. And I really like the, the innovative approach that the surface style brings, the idea that you can manipulate and interact with these UI elements in a different way than just tapping your finger, sliding your finger on a pane of glass. I think that's really cool. I got to say, though, we haven't said this yet about the Surface Studio and, and the Surface style. It is going to matter so much how well executed these products are. Right. I, I mean, if they like they they are they are really creative and innovative and immediately appealing visually and otherwise, but if they are awkward to use, it's going to hurt them badly, mm-hmm. and and I think that's what the that that's what it's going to come down to. That's the that's the last, but I think honestly the biggest hurdle is is coming up with ideas for a product like this is one thing, but executing in a way that it truly feels intuitive and exciting and engaging that's that's where it gets really hard and and i i think i certainly think microsoft is capable of delivering on that but that's that's going to be the big test right right yeah no absolutely okay in the interest of time let's move on to the apple event i'm sure we'll keep talking about some of these elements that we've been talking about but let's go on to the apple event um the apple event also kind of in two parts um also one about software one about hardware uh in apple's case first part of the event was really about tv um, and, you know, Tim Cook kind of reiterated this idea that the future of TV is about apps. Um, the big problem with that vision, though, has always been it means you're dipping in and, in and out of apps. And so when you first turn on the TV, instead of being presented with content, you're being presented with apps. And you have, the first decision you have to make is which app to go into, or you have to have a clear idea of what you want to watch already so that you can use Siri to jump into an app that way. Um, the new TV app that's going to be available on the Apple TV, the iPhone, and the iPad is basically a unifying interface that gives you that more traditional TV experience of, of having instant access to the content rather than to apps. And so even if the future of TV is apps, you're kind of not going to see that anymore in this scenario because uh, you're just going to be presented with lots of content you can watch. When you press play, you don't get any of the Chrome or anything around it. You just get a player. Uh, and depending on which button you push next you might easily go back into the TV app again rather than into, say, the HBO app or the Stars app or whatever. Um, so it's a very interesting model. It, it basically uh, overlays Apple's new interface on top of these apps, even though the video is technically delivered by apps behind the scenes. Uh, you don't really see much of that. Uh, if you hit the menu button when you're in a video, yes, you will see the rest of that app and, and not the TV app. But if you hit the TV button, it takes you straight back to that guide and uh, and so you'll never see the inside of the app or any of the other interactivity there. Uh, that, in turn, is probably why somebody like Netflix seems to be a holdout right now on this. You know, they have their own interface. They feel they're able to kind of surround you with content in much the same way just by themselves. And I think they don't see the need to sort of sacrifice that to be part of what Apple's doing here. And so that's something I want to come back to. But an interesting proposition, certainly something that I think they've needed for a while, a way to unify this um, Live is missing from it. There's no Mac version because on the Mac, these things are websites and not apps, and it'd be harder to architect. Um, but certainly the beginnings of something interesting and certainly also potentially the beginning of a TV service from app. You know, calling the thing from Apple, calling the thing TV is an obvious first step to <laughs> yeah. making it the way you watch TV through Apple directly rather than through apps. And, you know, some of these third-party guys have got to be thinking about 
you know, that as a potential future too. But Aaron, what was your take on this TV part of it? Yeah, you know, the, the future of over-the-top television is still very blurry, and it's hard to know exactly how it's going to shape up. But Apple is trying to get ahead of one really big problem, which is fragmentation. Because yeah. it's looking more and more like that is that going to be the future of over-the-top television services, that, you know, the individual content providers are going to be the ones shipping it out. And so HBO has been doing it for a while now. ESPN has been doing it for a while now. But more and more, uh, these content providers are getting in on it thinking, well, let's control the experience. And Apple is internally, I'm sure, freaking out over that, that direction because they realize that's not consumer-friendly. Mm-hmm. And so this the the TV app is is Apple trying to get out ahead of the fragmentation problem because it really it it really is going to be an anchor on the growth of over the top products and services if everybody's doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't solve the problem of fragmentation in terms of payment. I mean, there are aggregators that make it a little bit more convenient, like Netflix and Hulu, <clears throat> but. Uh, and it looks like Hulu is going to be baked into the TV app, which is great. Yeah. Um, but uh, but the problem is is you know the the problem of fragmentation in terms of getting access to content. This seems like a promising approach to that, and one that Apple may be uniquely positioned to actually pull off. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they have enough bargaining power with all of the content providers that they can bring them together, and uh, and if they can get them all in on the TV app, then. Uh, then it'll be exciting. I think the problem that Apple's going to face in convincing the the content providers to go along with this in the long run is promotion, right? Like how how do you promote if you're a content provider? How are you able to promote your shows within uh, within the TV app? I think the last thing they want is something like what the App Store is in terms of a promotional nightmare for software right. developers. Yeah, um, and not that there will be nearly as much content in the TV app as there is at the apps on the app store in terms of number of apps. But mm-hmm. then the other problem will just be advertising. Um, there's a lot of advertising that happens within app that doesn't necessarily happen as you're watching the video, right? Mm-hmm. If like right. CBS and the others, they advertise inside the app. Promoting their other shows the and so on. Yeah. And so this is going to constrain the, the potential for ad revenue. Mm-hmm. And it'll be interesting to see the way Apple manages that. I mean, the, you know, it's not it's not deadly because, you know, like you were describing, the TV app takes you into the other company's app to, to watch the content. So they can maybe work with Apple to make sure that the advertising they need to sustain their, you know, to sustain a show is is getting to the cust- getting to the viewers still. But mm-hmm. but I don't know. I mean, it'll be interesting. It, again, it's it's just going to depend on on how well this actually works when you get to try it out. So, right. And it sounds like right. that's not going to be for another month. Yeah, and the demos that I've seen were very good. I, I got a chance to spend some time with it, and it really did look you know, pretty solid. But uh, I think the biggest single issue, frankly, is, is the willingness of content providers to play along. If it's just Netflix missing, okay, then you kind of fall into, do I want to watch Netflix or everything else, you know, kind of model. So that's not too bad. But if it's more than just Netflix, then it starts to break down pretty quickly as a value proposition. The other thing is that um, a lot of these apps are enabled by, they're TV everywhere apps, right? So you need to be authenticated with your pay TV provider in order to watch them. Apple announced single sign-on in the summer, still hasn't released it. Um, In a press release that went out yesterday, uh, they mentioned Dish and DirecTV specifically, which are two satellite providers here in the US, with no cable companies mentioned. And of course, cable companies are the biggest uh, owners of pay TV in the US. So if cable companies are not part of this, 
then that value proposition also breaks down. Uh, you can still authenticate yourself to the individual apps individually, as you do today, um, but you know it gets a lot less useful, and, and, and again, the value proposition starts to fall apart. So, you know, both the cable companies and Netflix, you know, have the potential to to put a dent in this, and so it'll be interesting too to see how quickly Apple is able to get some of these companies on board. Um, as I understand it, Netflix is considering it, but just won't be part of the first version of this. So could be if they see everybody using this and viewership of Netflix content on Apple TV goes down, they say, okay, we have to be part of it after all, but we'll see how that goes. Yeah, it may be the case that Apple has to pay, you know, to keep content providers around. Mm. So the, we'll yeah. see if that's, if that's how this goes. And that would obviously mean the Apple charging for... Um, whatever this TV service turns into. But, you know, maybe this opens the door for Apple to finally be able to pull off an over-the-top service. Yeah, yeah. No, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, it's it's there's certainly plenty of other activity in that area, as we've talked about before. Let's move on to the MacBook Pros. Um, you know, the, the headline feature was kind of the new touch bar. You know, it's certainly the most unique and distinctive thing about these new uh, laptops. But obviously, you know, there's big spec upgrades. There's new ports. There's new displays. Um, a whole variety of other stuff in there too. So, um, Aaron, what was your sort of initial take on the hardware announcements? Um, well, I, I'll be totally honest. I was disappointed they didn't do more with the rest of the Mac line, but it's it's disappointment that came even though I should know better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's because I say that because anytime Apple does a new feature like the Touch Bar, um, they only ever started with one product. Right. I mean, this has always been the case across all their product lines. It's pretty much a lock that if Apple's going to try out a new uh, interface element of any kind, um, especially something physical that requires manufacturing prowess like the Touch Bar does, mm-hmm. um, it's going to be just uh, it, it's going to be just in one product to begin with. Right. I, I think it's a lock that next year we're going to see iMac shipping with keyboards that have Touch Bars built into them. I don't know when that'll happen, but I just think it's inevitably going to be the case. And by then, there will be more developer support because devs will have had a chance to get their hands on these and so forth. Um, I I think the touch bar looks awesome, being totally frank. And and it's funny because, and I might be getting ahead of us here with the comparison stuff, but when you think about the the Surface uh, Studio and how that is a really big, dramatic innovation, the touch bar seems like a small one, but everybody I read who had a chance to be there yesterday, uh, you know, like you, mm-hmm. spoke really highly of the touch bar as a as a as an innovative and useful interface device. Yeah, and, and that's really cool. And I love the idea that something so simple as getting rid of the function keys that you know people really only use to control iTunes and the volume, mm-hmm. you know, like like making better use of that space. It's one of those things where you just think, man, why even why hasn't anybody done this before? You know, why hasn't anybody made better use of this space before? And I realize over the years, laptop manufacturers have tried all kinds of different ways to make that space at the top of the keyboard useful. Um, Apple's really pulling in a lot of engineering ability and, and experience in this. In fact, from what it looks like, and Ars Technica had a nice article about this, it basically looks like this is a mini version of, of, of an Apple Watch but yep. st- stretched out across the top of the keyboard. It uses very similar hardware. It's using a variant of watchOS to pull this off. And yeah. and it's based on Apple baking its own silicon into, into the, the MacBook Pro and not just relying purely on the Intel 
uh, processor to, to do all this. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and I think a multi-touch, that little tiny thin multi-touch surface at the top just feels like as, you know, just a wealth of potential. And that's really exciting. It yeah. does make me sad though, because I primarily, you know, I, I mean, I do use my laptop in my lap, but not nearly as much as I do plugged in at my desk where I have a keyboard and a monitor. And, mm -hmm. and so I'm either changing habits or I'm not going to be using the touch bar as much as I wish. Yeah. So, I mean, when you say plugged in, you mean closed, right? So it's basically, uh, no, the I, I, I leave it open. Oh, you do have it open. Up, oh, it's okay. nice to drag windows over to it, but yeah, I never yeah. really use the keyboard on my, right. on my laptop when I'm at my desk. I use okay, the interesting. extra keyboard yeah. that I have. Yeah, no, I did see other people talking about that scenario where they use it closed, so they basically use the CPU and nothing else um, when they're you know at a desk or whatever, where they're uh, in the office and they plug it into a bunch of peripherals. Uh, so that that will be interesting, as you say, that'll either change behaviors or not. <laughs> you know, so either the, the touch bar will get used, or it'll be a feature they don't use unless they're away from the office, but. Um, you know, I, so much that's interesting about this. Yes, the touch bar in person is really fun. It feels really nice to kind of run your finger along it. It's very responsive. You know, it's the, the interesting, I think a lot of the stuff that's going to be very interesting to watch is around how, how people's habits change because it's not been there before. You know, this is a strip that you don't touch right now unless you're trying to change volume or brightness or something. Um, and suddenly it's an area you're potentially going to use quite a bit. And so there's a remembering that it's there, remembering that things you used to have to move a mouse to something on the screen to touch, you now um, can just touch there on the keyboard. So that's the first part of it. The other one, though, and this is the more interesting one in some ways, is as you start touching all these little buttons, as, as some of them prompt things to pop up on the screen, you then go to touch them on the screen. That's a very natural response is that you, you're using the touch bar, it prompts some action on the screen, and then you want to go touch something on the screen of the actual computer, and you can't mm -hmm. do that. Um, and I, it happened to me, it happened to a couple of other people I talked to yesterday in the demo area as well. Uh, so there are going to be a lot of these little mental adjustments and some learning curve associated with using these things. Um, but, you know, they had a whole variety of the Apple apps and some third-party apps that they were demoing yesterday that already used these um, new touch bar buttons and it's really clever how they've thought about it and it really um, deals with things that that can be kind of a pain right now I mean as a simple example I don't use emojis on my Mac all that much but when I do I have to have a little keyboard uh, thingy in the corner of my screen that I can pop open and look for emojis and I have to scroll through them and it's kind of a pain whereas um, you know this now would put emojis right in front of you on that little touch bar you can scroll through them just as you would on an iPhone and quickly pick one with your finger um, you know, there's uh, lots of little stuff like that, and that may not be the most uh, momentous of them, but there are lots of examples of where this suddenly puts things very easily within reach such that your hands stay within that same sort of surface area, stay on the same plane, don't have to switch to a different device, don't have to reach up to touch the screen. You just get to stay in that horizontal plane the whole time between the larger trackpad now and the, the touch bar. It's really a very interesting uh, way of working, and, and obviously this invites comparisons with the Surface Studio and, and Microsoft's approach to touch in Windows 10, which we should talk about. But uh, it's it's really interesting. To me, I think the best way that I came up with to, to describe it is it's instead of making the whole screen touch, you take a tiny slice of the screen uh, that you want to interact with because you really don't want to generally interact with most of the screen. It's really a tiny slice of the screen that is actually interactive. You take that slice and you put it down within reach so that you can interact with it. And it's a very different approach philosophically. Um, but it, it's an interesting one. I think it, it can be quite powerful. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. I'm excited about it. And I, uh, 
you know, I the, the idea it didn't occur to me the instinct to have to re, that you might want to reach up and touch the screen later, mm. um, you know, after you interact with the touch bar. But but the idea that you'll have to change habits to adjust to this. I mean, this isn't the first time Apple has 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 done this. I mean, the iPhone obviously is a huge switch that way. But even little things like the way they're pushing trackpads a lot more than uh, than the mouse and and all, yeah. and all sorts of stuff like that. So, you, you know, I. Some people just don't care, and some people mm-hmm. won't use it very much. Yeah. Um, I think the fact that it's going to be bright and colorful, colorful though, <laughs> is going to get a lot yeah. of people to use it just because it right. will. It draws the eye, and and that's yeah. it. Sounds like a silly thing to point out, but but that stuff, that sort of stuff, really does make a difference. Yeah. No, it's interesting too. They they designed it so that it's very visible at the sort of forty five degree angle that you're usually watching from. It's not like it's tilted towards you. It's flat. Yeah. Um, but they designed it such that the viewing angle really works at that because you're going to be off to, you know, off to the, in front of it basically. Where's where your eyes are going right. to be most of the time, not right directly over it. And so they designed it so that it's highly visible even from that angle, which was an interesting sort of design decision. Sort of classic Apple, really thinking about how you're actually going to be using it. Right. Um, that's. Uh, is there anything else you want to say about this kind of in and of itself? I mean, there's plenty of other stuff we could talk about. No new desktops, for example. You know, they're one, yeah. two, and three years old respectively. What does this say about desktops? You know, these are now very powerful. They can do a lot of the stuff that desktops can, but you can't get a 12-core MacBook Pro, you know. Um, so the Mac Pro still kind of has a role there, but it's interesting to think about what this means for the future of desktops. But any other sort of general thoughts about all this? Uh, I think now we're finally, finally going to see USB-C really taking off now mm. that the MacBook Pros are there. I think you're going to see a much bigger push by third-party vendors to be producing USB-C compatible things. The displays, I guess we should talk about just quickly because yeah. they killed the, the the Thunderbolt display earlier this year. And now they, uh, in the event yesterday, they specifically made reference to having partnered with LG to come out with two displays, a, f- yeah. a 21 and a half inch 4K display. And I think it was a 27 inch 5K display. These are really kind of made for the MacBook Pro. They rely almost exclusively on Thunderbolt 3 and USB C. I, you know, when I found out that these were going to be Skylake chips in the MacBook Pro, I was really feeling anxious about that because the difference is the difference between Skylake and KB Lake, which is the next generation that's that's slowly rolling out, is display display port standard 1.2 or 1.3. And 1.3 has can use a single stream to 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 drive a 5K display, whereas DisplayPort 1.2, which is in the Skylake chips, can only drive. Uh, it takes two streams to run a 5K display. And Marco Arment had written about this, and Mac Rumors had written extensively about this. How they weren't sure that Apple could use Skylake in their laptops to drive 5K displays. Uh, Apple seems to have figured it out. I right. mean, you, you can use one cable and drive a 5K display. It's obviously sending multiple streams through the one cable to mm. pull that off. But, uh, you know, it, it looks like that's not actually going to be a problem. And and, uh, and it seems like a weird sort of arcane thing to worry about. But for a lot of pros that are going to be buying this thing, those, you know, the ability to handle a 5K display is going to be a big deal because that really is going to be the new standard for displays that right. professionals are buying to to tie into their MacBook Pros. Yeah. <clears throat> um, you know, I, I, the future of USB-C is exciting, but it's going to be so annoying. Like yeah. we're stuck in adapter transition for another yeah. year or two, right? Yeah. And yeah. in fact, it's going to always be that way. 
anyway, but it's funny because I've been holding on to an old MacBook Pro for um, about five years now. And so I have the one just before they added HDMI in. Uh, and so I've missed an entire generation with an HDMI jack. Well, the reason that matters is because when I go teach in my classrooms, if I hook my laptop up to the projectors, I always have to use an adapter for the HDMI connection. Mm -hmm. And I am going to be getting one of the new MacBook Pros because I'm due. It's like my turn to get a new computer. And uh, I'm going to be missing out on the built-in HDMI again. So any hope I had of an adapter for the future (laughs) connecting to projectors is now gone. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and this, I mean, again, reinforces why Apple's pushing wireless so hard. You know, the more you right. use wireless technologies of various kinds for this stuff, the less you have to worry about this. But, you know, as a simple matter, you know, the, the MacBook Pro and the standard cable that come with a new iPhone are no longer compatible. You know, you will need right. an adapter or a new cable to be able to use one with the other. Uh, neither of them out of the box can work with, with the other. But, you know, in, you know, and I've seen a lot of people say this in the last couple of days, when was the last time you plugged your iPhone into your computer? I actually still do it a fair amount for various reasons, including, you know, backing stuff up. But uh, uh, the reality is a lot of people are just using iCloud and, and over-the-air updates and so on. They're not plugging these things into computers anymore. And so that isn't necessarily a deal breaker. But uh, there will be lots of other stuff. I mean, I have two displays sitting in front of me here at my desk. One of them is a Dell one of them is an old LED cinema display from Apple. So the, the Apple one uses mini display port. The Dell does mini display port and then has a variety of other connectivity options as well. But I'm going to have to get some kind of an adapter for both of them if I want to use them both. Um, you know, and that's going to be the case for any other kind of periphery, you know, mice or various other things. Anything that uses a cable probably doesn't have USB-C at the other end right now. Right. And so there's going to be lots of adapters needed. It's coming, though. It is the future, yeah. and someday yeah. we'll get there, and we can stop yeah. complaining when that happens. Uh, that's right. In the meantime, lots of stories about dongles. Um, right. <laughs> but, yeah, let's, so let's spend the last few minutes kind of comparing and contrasting a little bit. I mean, I think a couple of the things that have really occurred to me, uh, one is obviously touch, which we talked about a fair amount already, the sort of philosophical approaches to touch. And I think particularly since Windows laptops over the last few years have kind of eroded the hardware advantage that the MacBook had for a long time. So... You can get very thin, very portable, very light, very performant Windows laptops now with nice design, really good trackpads. You know, these are some things that took bafflingly long time for Windows devices to achieve, but with help from Intel, um, they've been largely done now. So there isn't the same hardware advantage. It's mostly a philosophical difference, and I think touch is one of the biggest differences at this point between these. So that's one theme. I think another one is just about the freedom to innovate. So I think, you know, for Microsoft, having never made an all-in-one before, they felt free to do, you know, something interesting with it. They made all kinds of uh, interesting changes. The fact that it folds down to become a drafting table, the fact that you have the dial, the fact that, um, you know, it's basically a tiny screen and then the the CPU is actually in the base of the what's effectively a monitor. Um, lots of things that they were free to do because they had never made one before. Other Windows manufacturers had, but they hadn't. And so they weren't constrained by people's expectations. They weren't constrained by what they'd done before. They weren't constrained by having to stick with a design language or anything else. They could really think about this from scratch. And then you look at the new MacBook Pros, and, and you know, the touch bar is completely new, touch ID is completely new. They have redesigned the computers. They're smaller and thinner, but they look very much like they always have done. Um, and so there's a difference there in terms of freedom to innovate. And then lastly, I think you know, uh, Microsoft's message for the last f- several years since they launched the first Surface was no compromise. 
So you have a single device that can do everything. And I, I've always criticized that vision. You are always making compromises. You're just making them in other places that you're ignoring by, by trying to have that message. But Microsoft's vision has been about one device can do everything. Apple's vision is about vision is about different devices for different use cases. So we have touch computers, they're over here, they're called iPads. We have laptops and they're over here and they're called MacBooks. One has touch, one doesn't. One has a keyboard built in, the other one doesn't. Um, you know, those differences. And, and you know, if you want both those use cases, you need to buy both the devices basically. So difference there as well. So interesting to kind of compare and contrast these. Aaron, any thoughts from you on that? Uh, yeah, well, the I, I think the Microsoft approach is going to have a place in the market just like Apple's has already. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think there are a lot of people who are going to really enjoy a really massive touchscreen that is a computer at the same time. Uh, I think I, there are already people who prefer the Surface to an iPad um, because they like the marriage of a touchscreen with a you know more traditional laptop uh, form factor. I, it, I think I think what it really comes down to is there's a place for both of these approaches. You know, there's there's a, a place for uh, Apple as well to have the, sort of the best version of what you're getting for the the interface you're expecting. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I mean, it's so funny because you know we come from the the whole computing world still carries as a hangover this uh, this PC wars mentality that one's going to win. Right. And right. I'm not sure that that has to be the case going into the future, yeah. that, that what that one of these approaches has to win and the other has to lose. Um, it, it's been that way with iOS versus Android, although they're pretty similar in a lot of ways that really doesn't make that big of a difference. But but I but I think both Apple and Microsoft can can maintain healthy businesses doing what they do. I don't think we have to say one is better than the other. I think it's it's going to just matter on it's going to depend essentially on how people use their computers. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah I, I do think that the, the weird distinction between tablets and PCs, uh, and I call it weird just because the idea is that tablets aren't really computing devices is the way a lot of people see them. Mm -hmm. I hope that goes away increasingly over time just so that yeah. people recognize it's all computing. It's just different different manifestations of it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think there's room. And mm -hmm. I think both yeah, can have yeah. a healthy business out of it. Yeah, and it's worth remembering, you know, Microsoft dominates the PC market today. You know, Macs have a small share. They're one of the bigger vendors, but, um, you know, in terms of share of operating system, you know, it's still a tiny share of the overall market. Um, and so they're, they're, you know, going about this in very different ways, but they're also coming from very different places in terms of their current market share and their focus. Apple's at the premium end. Microsoft, like Google, with its hardware efforts, is very much focused at that high end as well. Uh, which has interesting implications for OEMs. Um, but I think you know one of the things that Microsoft can do very effectively, and it's perhaps one of the reasons why Apple's really talking up the iPad Pros as computers is, Microsoft can say, hey, here's a laptop, does all the stuff that your MacBook does, uh, but it also does touch. And you know the MacBook can't compete. You know, and they've had ads with people tapping on MacBook screens and not getting anywhere, and so on. And you know, it's a very easy message. And Apple obviously would respond well if you want touch. Here's an iPad Pro and all the rest of it. But you know, for now, it's very easy for Microsoft to say, hey, you know, our laptops have touch, yours don't, and uh, to use that as a marketing message. And so I think it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. And to your point, how successful Apple is about getting people to think about tablets, including the iPad Pro, as a computer, as a potential computer replacement, um, if touch is really important to you. Um, but yeah, I think it's fascinating to see these different philosophical approaches playing out now. 
Uh, in some ways, we've arrived in a similar spot to where we are with the smartphone market. You know, in the smartphone market, you have Android and iOS. For a very long time, Android devices were inferior in various ways to iOS devices. In the last couple of years, they've been pretty much on parity, including finally on cameras, which was kind of one of the hardest parts for them to achieve. Uh, so at this point, it's really about philosophical differences. Do you like the Apple approach better? Do you like Android approach better? Do you value privacy? Do you value design? Do you value... Uh, cloud services, do you, you know, what do you value? And so that's really what it comes down to. And so, uh, you know, I think both these markets are in a similar place now, and you see the same sort of dynamics between these companies potentially, and with both Microsoft and Google choosing to get into hardware finally at this point in the market when the hardware differences have largely disappeared, um, and both playing at the premium end of the market. So lots of interesting stuff going on. Yeah, and there's a there's a lot more room for growth and creative ideas, and that part is encouraging to me about what the announcements from this week, that uh, the PC can still be a really creative and interesting form factor as going forward in the future, and we're not all going to be stuck between behind these two D, you know, glass surfaces. Yeah, no, absolutely. Any last thoughts before we wrap up? No, I, it'll be fun next week to talk about earnings. There's all sorts of news we haven't mm-hmm. really scratched there, so yeah. that'll be nice to get to next week. Yeah, so we had, we've had we had Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, Twitter, all already in the last past week. Um, we'll have more next week to talk about as well. And so uh, I think next week's episode probably will be earnings-focused. We'll be talking through some of those earnings that I just mentioned and some you know Facebooks on Wednesday afternoon. So... I'm not sure when we'll record the podcast yet, but we, we may or may not include them as well. But we've seen a lot of the big names, certainly in consumer tech, report already. And so there's plenty to talk about there, even if we exclude Facebook. So thank you to everybody for being with us. Um, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Give us a, a rating, a recommendation on iTunes and Overcast in your podcasting app of choice. Uh, and we look forward to being with you again next week. Thanks. <laughs>